Well, good morning. I'm enjoying this topic a lot because this uh, is kind of a nostalgia thing for me. When I was seven or eight years old, the local cable network had a, one of its channels would run uh, reruns of old television shows at night. It's one of the few things I had permission to watch on television. Um, and these, these were shows like I Love Lucy and the Dick Van Dyke Show and things of that nature. But my favorite was Superman, right? These are the old 19, early 1960s reruns that came on. Uh, of Clark Kent and uh, the, the problems in Metropolis and how he would spring into action. And there was something about that show that I loved. I mean, I, 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 I watched it. I stayed up late and watched it. I had my parents buy me the pajamas, although they bought me a set without a cape, which I still resent because that's why I couldn't fly, I think. But, um, but no, I, I loved Superman. And, and apparently I'm not alone because the Superman franchise has been quite successful. Um, it just has never really hit the ground. There's always been some momentum there. And I think one of the reasons for that is that there's something in the human spirit that kind of wishes for what Clark Kent had. I mean, we identify with the Clark side of him because, you know, he's just an average looking guy, normal guy with normal capabilities, you know. Um, but when Metropolis, which let's just face it, was a city with a lot of problems, bless their heart, Metropolis had issues. But when, when Metropolis had an issue that was bigger than Clark, right, he had the ability to step out of who he was, to step into someone who was totally capable and handle the problem. And I think why we identify with that is because all of us are in a world with problems that are bigger than we are. All the time I hear people tell me, you know, I just don't think, I don't think I'm good enough. I don't think I'm going to make the grade. I don't think I'm good enough for my spouse or for my parents. Or I don't think I'm a good enough student. Or I don't think I'm going to get into this program. Or I don't think this is going to happen for me. Right? Because we're always facing challenges that feel like they are bigger than we are. And there's that, that wish that somehow we, like Clark Kent, could just shed all those human limitations and step into those situations and just take care of it. Just fix it. And I, I talk about that as we, as we get into this because, let me put it this way. This series, I hope, is helpful for you. But in general, this series is about me working through my own issues. Every once in a while, I need permission to do that, right? I mean, I have, I have problems too, and this is a series about a major problem that I have. And I'm hoping that some other people in the room have the same problem that I have, but either way, we're going to talk about it, right? And that problem is, to be honest with you, I have a little bit of a Superman complex going on. Right? Superman complex in that I know that I cannot do what Clark Kent did. I cannot become superhuman when I face big problems in life. My problem is that I tend to behave as though I think I am superhuman when those problems come down the pipeline. As a matter of fact, I tend to treat myself as though I ought to be superhuman in order to be able to handle those problems. Like, here's a, here's a, here's a metric. Maybe, maybe, maybe you have a little bit of this, maybe you have it bad like me, but I'll give you some, some, some metrics to tell whether or not you have uh, a Superman complex. One is, uh, you, have no re you have no no reflex, or at least the no reflex is out of order, right? So when people ask you to do something, or if you're capable of taking something on, or would you mind doing this, right? There is no no in your vocabulary. You say yes whether or not you really can do it, right? You have a lot of things on your plate right now, right? And all of them are critical. Like none of the major projects you've got going on could you just drop because they're all mission critical and you have to make sure all of them get done, right? You don't have a minute that you can call your own and when you do take downtime, you feel guilty about it, right? 
no matter how hard you try, and no matter how hard you plan, and how much you work your plan, things still eventually slip through the cracks. And when they do, you feel bad about it, and you take responsibility for it, whether or not you could have done anything to prevent it. And, this is probably the clincher, when people suggest that you unplug, they say, well, you're too stressed out. You need to unplug. You, you need to take a break. You need to take a rest. There's something on the inside that sort of laughs at that and goes, and just who would handle all this craziness if I did that? Part of what makes you kind of laugh when somebody says you ought to unplug is that if you have it bad, if you really have a bad Superman complex, you know that if you could do more, you would. You're pushing yourself as hard as you can. You, you, it's, it's as though there's a line in this universe that separates humanness from superhumanness. And you know you can't be superhuman, but you tend to behave that way. It's as though you stand on the human side of the line and dare yourself to cross it when problems come your way. Here's the thing. You're going to have pressure in your life. You're going to have stress. That's a given, right? All of us can have a certain level of it. And, and, and to a certain extent, some pressure is a good thing, right? It keeps us on our toes. It, it, it encourages us to develop. We, we grow in areas that we might not otherwise grow in. But ask a physics teacher. I don't know, I may have some physics people in the room. Ask a physics teacher what unlimited pressure within a contained vessel is. It's a recipe for an explosion, is what it is. An unlimited pressure. See, that's the thing. So many of us right now in our lives, we are accommodating unlimited pressure, but we are limited and we are finite, and that is a recipe for a meltdown. And I'll tell you, I'll give you a little bit of an of a, a idea of how you can figure out whether you're headed for a Superman meltdown or not. Okay, so here's how it works. Think about this. Suppose in the control room of your life, there are two big knobs, right? On one knob is the word capabilities, and you don't get to touch that knob. That's for God to set. God sets that setting, what you're capable of. On the other side is a knob that says expectations, and you get to set that dial, right? So if you set the expectations dial farther than your capabilities dial, you're headed for a meltdown. It's not a question of if, it's a question of when. If what you expect of yourself is more than what you're capable of, you're headed for a meltdown. Now, already I know. I've got somebody in the room uh, who is a God follower who wants to set me straight and say, now, Jonathan, don't you know that the Bible says through God we can do anything? God wants to do superhuman things through us, and God can accomplish infinitely more than we might ask or think. I'm aware of all that. But what I'm saying is the human side of the line is for us to be on. The superhuman side of the line is for God to be on. And as long as we let God do superhuman things through us, that's cool. The issue is for people like me who tend to think somehow I can tiptoe at moments across the line and do God's job for him. That's when we get into trouble. That's a recipe for a meltdown. And in these five weeks, we're going to be talking about five really awesome people in the Bible who struggled with a Superman complex. We're gonna look at the meltdown moments that they had, and then we're gonna figure out what could they have done differently, and then we're gonna take those lessons so that those of us who struggle with this can really say goodbye to that Superman complex and let reality meet the real person that we are on the inside, okay? So, with that introduction, we're gonna talk about the first of our five characters, and the first character is King David in the Old Testament. 
you, even if you don't have a lot of church experience, you're probably very familiar with David because this is the David of David and Goliath, the teenager that steps out of obscurity onto the national scene and uh, goes after a 10-foot-tall giant with a slingshot um, and takes out the, the enemy of the country and ends up sort of becoming a household name in his nation. To this day, obviously, that's what he t- is typically known for, Right? And we're going to talk about this because if anybody ever had an excuse to have a Superman complex, it was David, right? Now, if you look at David's life, which we're going to try to do very quickly this morning, and there's more ink devoted to David in the Bible than any other Old Testament character. There's more chapters written about him than anybody else. And um, so I say all that to say we're going to really have to move fast through a lot of material, so you're going to have to bear with me as we skip past some things. But... David, if you look at David's life, you're going to watch him go through what I call the three levels of achievement, right? For me, the three levels of achievement are this, survival, success, and significance, right? At the survival level, now by the way, you can be in different situations of your life at different levels, right? So you may be surviving in one area of your life and be achieving significance in another area of your life. But when you're at that survival stage, you're just trying to keep your head above water. That is the number one goal. You're you're, you're not exploring your potential. You're not making a huge difference in the world. You are just trying to stay alive, right? And we see that with David. There was a time when that was where he was at. We read uh, in in, uh, um, 1 Samuel 16 that he was um, keeping the sheep and goats. His father said he's out in the field watching the sheep and goats. A little later on, we're going to read that while he would keep the sheep and goats, he encountered a bear and a lion. And and from the wording of the text, it looks like maybe more than once. And not only that, the Bible tells us that at moments, David actually um, fought the bear and the lion with his bare hands. So I don't know about you. To me, that sounds like survival mode. Right? He's, he's not exploring his potential. He's not changing the world. He's just trying not to be eaten. Right? So he knows what it's like to be in survival mode. And by the way, if you know what it's like to be in survival mode, you know that there is stress there. Right? But then he also knew what it was like to be in success mode. It wasn't too long before uh, the current king of Israel was really struggling with some inner turmoil. And um, he wanted a musician to come in and play for him. And his advisor said, you know, we've got this kid, David. He's a good musician. He's a talented guy. He's a, he's a, um, a warrior. Um, but he can come in and play music for you. And so now David is somebody everybody in the court knows. His past has clearance to every room in the palace. He can go anywhere he wants. He is not yet changing the world, but he is beginning to explore his potential. And if you know what that stage is like, if you know what the success stage of life is like, you know that at that stage there is stress. And then, as he goes into that valley and does battle one-on-one with the giant, David, as a teenager, finds himself smack dab in the middle of the significance category. He is now changing the world. He's making an impact, and people are counting on him. And if you've experienced significance in an area of your life, you know there's stress at that level. Now, here's, here's what I would tell you. Always growing up, or especially in my early 20s, I thought that the way this whole thing works is that the most stress is at the bottom of the pyramid. When you are working hard to survive, that's where the most stress is. And, and in those moments where I was in survival mode, I thought, if I could just find a way to be successful, if I could just get out of this place where I'm trying to fight to keep my head above water, I would have less stress. And then I got to the success level, and I thought, well, if I could just get to a point where I was really making an impact on my world, then at that point, I wouldn't stress at all. Here's what I learned, and probably what you've learned as well. It works the opposite way. The more success you achieve, the more stress you have to deal with. 
And once you hit an area of your life where you're experiencing significance, it's the most stress you'll ever experience because people are now counting on you. When you begin to make a difference in the world, people rely on you. You're responsible now for something. And so David, now I want you to think about this. As a teenager, David now knows what it is like to experience a huge amount of stress to have people counting on him. So no wonder this guy developed a little bit of a Superman complex. David later on becomes king of God's people. And God describes David as a man after his own heart. And if you had known David in those days, my hunch is he probably would have seemed a little like Superman to you because he was very good at what he did. When it came to being king, there was none better. David really knew how to do his job. But like everybody who has a Superman complex, there's a dark side. And for David, the dark side was his family life. I mean, his professional life was awesome. His home life couldn't have been worse. I mean, first of all, against God's instructions, David had eight wives that we know of, probably more. He had 20 sons that we know of, and probably more, and at least one daughter that the Bible names. And again, we think that there were more than that. So uh, I don't know what your family life is like. I'm married and have two little girls, uh, and the four of us keep each other pretty busy. I cannot imagine what it would be like to be in a house where there's eight wives, 20 sons, at least one daughter, right? I mean, that, that had to be one stressful community to live in, as far as I'm concerned, right? And then in addition to all this, so you start off, for years, this is really the only wrinkle, is that David is really not following God's plan, and so I can imagine he had a pretty stressful house life just with the normal stresses that you or I would experience just on a bigger level. But in addition to that, later on he has this kind of midlife crisis thing, where he ends up infatuated with this other woman, he ends up having an affair with her, she ends up getting pregnant, and he has no way to deal with it other than eventually he has her husband killed so he can marry this woman he's had an affair with and make it look like nothing ever happened that was wrong. And that, you would think, would be the biggest wrinkle in his home life that went downhill, but I'm here to tell you, it really went off the rails with his kids. I mean, it got crazy. And that's what we're going to talk about here in a few moments. But what you should know is that David's MO with his kids, what being Superman cost David was that being Superman, or excuse me, was that with his kids, David was absent. He just wasn't around. And, and one of the places that we see this, just one of the places in 1 Kings chapter 1, this is talking about one of uh, David's other kids, Adonijah. Uh, his father, King David, had never disciplined him at any time, even by asking why are you doing that? This is one of the wisest guys in Israel who didn't bother to discipline his kids to say, you should do that, you shouldn't do this, why are you doing that? That's not allowable. He, he wasn't a presence with his kids. He was absent. And that's going to become very important here in a minute when we talk about a story that happened with three of his other kids. Now, I'm going to try to make this as simple as I can, but you're going to have to hang with me because there's a lot of wrinkles in this story. We're going to talk about three of his kids, one kid named Amnon, uh, and two other kids by the same mom, Absalom and Tamar, right? Tamar is the one daughter that we know of. It's the one daughter who's been given a name in the scripture, right? It's an ugly story, but the way it unfolds is this. Amnon became infatuated with his half-sister, Tamar. But he couldn't, he, he is, it, for one thing, it was wrong for him to do anything in that situation, but he knew that even if he could figure out a way to do it, he knew he couldn't have access to Tamar because the king's unmarried daughters were in a different part of the palace. So he works out this elaborate plan, right? He even involves David, which just really goes to show you that David had no clue what was going on in his house. But he works out this elaborate plan to pretend that he's sick and have David send 
his half-sister Tamar in to cook a meal for him, and when she did that, he forced himself on her. Now, Absalom, the full brother of this lady Tamar, right? Absalom is watching to see what's dad going to do because he's furious. He's waiting to see what, what's dad's response going to be to this because you should know in the, the law of the time, for a man to do what he did to, tam- for, to, 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 to this woman, uh, the law was that he would be stoned to death. That was the penalty for that. I mean, game, set, match. And so Absalom's watching. What's going to happen? What is dad going to do? Because he was really upset. And the Bible tells us what David did. 2 Samuel, in chapter 13, it says, When King David heard what had happened, he was very angry. That's it. No, no come to Jesus meeting. No uh, handing Amnon over to the authorities. No trial. No sentence. No nothing. As a matter of fact, David perverted justice by being absent. He just didn't do anything. So Absalom is watching. Once again, dad is absent. And then Absalom invites his dad and brothers to a party at his place. This is a couple years past. And he invites his dad and his brothers to a party. Now, just so you know, this is for free, but I really think that Absalom's plan was to murder his brother, whether his dad showed up or not. But he's going to invite dad anyway. And uh, so he says, Dad, I want you to come to this party. And the king replied, No, my son, if we all came, we'd be too much of a burden on you. And what a crock of hooey. Right? That's what somebody says when they don't want to come over to your house. No, I'd be too much of a burden on you. I don't want to be such an imposition. You know, I mean, we'd really... And now it's, you, you, I'll tell you what it is. That is David saying, you know, I, I'm really comfortable where I'm at. You know, I got a lot of work to do. David's doing the math in his head. If I was gone from work for five days, I, when I came back, my man, the stack of stuff I'd have to do would just be huge. And, and yeah, I mean, I know it's, it's my son and all that and, and everything, but I got a lot of work to do, and I cannot, he just doesn't understand. I can't be gone for that long, right? So what he does is he gives Absalom his blessing. No, you go have a good time. Right? You go have a really good time. But he's being absent. Check this out. Absalom pressed him, but the king would not come, though he gave Absalom his blessing. Well then, Absalom said, if you can't come, how about sending my brother Amnon with us? Why Amnon, the king asked. But Absalom kept on pressing the king until he finally agreed to let all his sons attend, including Amnon. So Absalom prepared a feast fit for a king. And Absalom told his men, wait until Amnon gets drunk, and then at my signal, kill him. Don't be afraid. I'm the one who has given the command. Take courage and do it. So at Absalom's signal, they murdered Amnon. And then the other sons of the king jumped on their mules and fled. So this is where I really need you to hang on with me because we're going to cover a lot of territory here in the next couple minutes. So what happens here is you have Absalom so mad at Amnon. Dad's not doing anything. He takes matters into his own hands. He has Amnon killed. Now what David does is David banishes Absalom to another country and won't speak to him. He says, I don't want to see you. I don't want to be around you. For three years, Absalom lived in another country. And once again, David handles the problem by being absent. He doesn't go talk to Absalom. He, he does not put Absalom with the appropriate authorities and, and have the appropriate trial and the appropriate sentence. Doesn't work that way. He handles the problem the same way he handled the problem with Amnon. He just is absent. Absent and angry. Then, a couple uh, after those three years were over, David lets Absalom come home, but just true to form, he doesn't want to see Absalom, so he says, I don't want to see him. Tell him not to show his face in front of me. And for two years, Absalom lived back at home where his dad was without seeing his dad because his dad didn't want to see him because that's the way David handles problems. He's absent. 
And then there's kind of a warm, fuzzy reunion at, at one point, kind of a, a hug and pat on the back, okay, we're all right now kind of thing that happens. So this is five years since Amnon was killed. Finally, they have a sort of tentative, things are going to be okay between us kind of moment. But by now, Absalom has gone off the rails, and he's trying to take the kingdom away from his dad. And he's playing this whole political game, telling people, oh, my dad doesn't care about you, but I care about you. And before the whole thing is wrapped up, Absalom has the kingdom, and David's having to run for his life. And we have this situation where David and Absalom are going at it with each other, and eventually Absalom gets killed. Right? And this, of all places, is where David has his meltdown. Check it out. 2 Samuel 18, 33. The king was overcome with emotion for the first time, right? He went up to the room over the gateway and burst into tears. And as he went, he cried, Oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom. If only I had died instead of you. Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. All these years he's been absent. Now he's present, but there's nobody to be present with. I do a lot of relationship coaching. A lot of my friends are therapists, psychologists. Um, I'm fortunate to get to, to run in that crowd, but... I've, of, I've often thought what it would be like if David came into an intake session in therapy. You know, so what's going on in your world? Well, uh, my work life's going pretty well. Um, you know, I, uh, things are starting to even out now, but you know, I did have that affair years ago, and that's thing, that whole thing sort of blew up, and I didn't know what to do. I had the gal's husband killed. In retrospect, that was a really bad decision. And then there was these three of my kids had this weird sort of thing going on. I one of my kids really getting this bad relationship with this other one of my kids and then the kid in the middle killed the other one and and then uh, uh, you know so then I didn't want to see him we were estranged for like five years and it was this big thing between the two of us and then you know I finally forgave him we started to work through it and then the next thing I know he's taking my job away from me then I have to run away and then when I finally come back you know he ends up dead and I'm, I'm sitting here thinking if I'm the therapist I'm thinking well first of all we need to change this to three or four sessions a week and second of all I need to get my books back out right uh, <laughs> Because that's some major stuff. For a guy who has a very successful life, he's got some major stuff going on in the background. Which, by the way, who do you know who has a very successful life? Because I'll bet you some money. The more the person that you know in your life is struggling with a Superman complex, the more behind the scenes there's some sort of meltdown going on. It's not always a personal meltdown, but there's some sort of meltdown going on on the inside. This is where David was at. And I have to ask you, in this moment, where David is having his meltdown. I want to ask the same question that I think David needed to be asking, which is what went wrong? How do you get from being a man after God's own heart, a very successful king, to having a family life that looked like his? And I want to share just a couple super simple thoughts with you before we're done this morning that I hope will help clear it up and help us make some wise decisions uh, in our lives. David had uh, two major things going on in his life, just, just as you do, just, just as I do, right? One is relationships and the other is jobs. Now, I don't have any better term to use than jobs, but I don't mean just the job that you punch in and punch out of when you go into work. I mean any task that is there in your life that leads to achievement, right? So um, if you're in this room and, and you, you carry the title mom, right, that is a job and all the men in the room said amen, right? Th that is a job, right? If, if, you, uh, if, if you volunteer, right? That's a job. Whatever you do, if it's a task that leads to achievement, that's what we're going to call a job. You have relationships and you have jobs. And all of us in our life at some point are going to have to make a decision which is more important. Now, as I say that, right, most of you are thinking, well, that's a slow pitch. 
right? Um, uh, you know, especially asking questions in church. We all, you know, when we come to church, we all are geared up and ready to answer questions the right way. And this is one of those questions when somebody says, what's more important, relationships or work? We go, oh, well, of course, relationships. Family comes first. My question is, are we really living that out? Is that really what our lives are bearing witness to? What comes first, relationships or, or jobs? Because David learned something in this situation, I think, that all of us need to learn. And you're going to hear us talk about this a few times during the Say Goodbye to Superman series. And that is, there is a basic principle in life. If you need to be superhuman in one area of your life, the only way you can accomplish that is to rob resources from another area of your life. And so David, wise as he was, and, and as good as he was at work, he robbed resources from the relationships area of his life to plug into the jobs area of his life to be more successful in that area. Can I tell you something? As I say that, there's that, there's that, that mental feeling that goes, well, how, you know, that was, that was not wise of him. That was, that was not a smart idea. After all, you know, relationships should come first. But I want to tell you, I think most of us that struggle with this, David, me, anybody who struggles with this, I want to tell you, I think we're doing it because we think it's the right thing to do. I think in our heart, we think that the people that we love, the relationships that we're in, need us to achieve. They need us to accomplish. They need us to do the best job that we can. And so it's not that we're letting relationships fall off our radar screen because we don't care about relationships. It's the opposite. It's that we're working so hard because we want to provide the best for the people that we have relationships with. The problem is it doesn't quite work out very well. If, if, if you don't get anything from this morning, I want you to pay attention to this. I want you to think about this. If relationships are more important than jobs in your life, when you look at a job, you'll eventually get to the point where you see relationships. If you let relationships be more important than jobs in your life, it won't be long before when you look at a job, what you'll see is relationships. You will be that person who has the finger, you'll, you'll have your finger on the pulse of your entire team. You'll know what people are thinking and feeling and what they're going through. It's, it's not like you're gonna be the team gossip. No, you're gonna be the person who just gets it. You're gonna get the people that you work with. You're gonna understand in, 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 in the home jobs, as a parent, as a spouse, you're gonna be that person who gets your spouse. You're gonna be that person who gets your kids because you're about a relationship and so you're paying attention to that side of things. But the opposite is true. If jobs in your life become more important than relationships, you will eventually get to the point where when you look at a relationship, you'll see a job. You'll see the task that's associated with that relationship. I told you when I started this talk, I said I talk to so many people who tell me that they're never going to be good enough. I'm not going to be a good enough spouse. I'm not going to be a good enough kid, a good enough parent. And you wonder, why, why all that internal pressure? Why is this person pressuring themselves so much to be the perfect kid, the perfect parent, the perfect spouse? Can I tell you? It's because I think that's from a long protracted period of looking at a relationship and seeing a job. It's no longer about, when I look at, at this point, this person, when they look at their marriage, they don't see the relationship between them and their spouse. They're asking themselves questions like, am I a good enough husband? Am I a good enough wife? Am I doing a good enough job at this part of my marriage? Am I doing a good enough job at this part of my marriage? Am I doing a good enough job of being a parent? Am I doing a good enough job at being a student? They're constantly evaluating themselves and they're constantly giving themselves a performance check. No wonder when they think about relationships, 
all they can really wrap their head around is, am I performing well enough? See, we got to get to the point where we become relationship-focused so that we can enjoy those relationships. We can enjoy your marriage. You can enjoy your kids. You can enjoy work because it's about relationships and not just about a, a task. i got to go to a kind of a tough place. It was tough for me to type. Now it's tough for me to say because it, it convicts me at a deep place. And that is that if you get to a point where jobs become more important than relationships you'll eventually get to the place where the people that need you the most will have to interface with you at a work level. In order to get your attention, they will have to interface with you at a work level. I'll give you an example from David's life, right? When David had his affair with Bathsheba and David thought he could just sweep everything under the rug and, and, and God needed to get David's attention and to help him understand that he couldn't just make this go away. He was gonna have to deal with the consequences of his decisions. The only way it worked was for the prophet of God to come in and talk to David about somebody else's problem. Because that's what David did. As a king, he would sit there and listen to people come talk to them about their problems or their disputes or their issues with their neighbors or what was going on in their life. And David would say, okay, well, here's what you should do. He just wasn't good at doing that for himself. Why? Because his presence was at work. He was absent in his personal life, but in his work life, he was present. And so in order to get his attention, the prophet of God had to come in and tell him a story about somebody else, but it was really about him because the only way he was, listen, the only way he was going to pay attention to his own problems is if somebody dressed it up as a work problem. Later on in his life, after he had banished Absalom, Absalom lived away for three years, and Absalom wanted to come home, and it was time for him to come home. One of David's advisors sent in a woman with a bogus story that, that was intended to get David to make the right decision about his own life. She tells the story as though it was about her, and then eventually says, this story is about you. Why? Because that's the way it worked with David. If you wanted his attention, you had to approach him at the work level. Maybe you have somebody like this in your life. Maybe there's somebody that when you get together with them, when you hang out, the only thing you can talk about is work. That's the only thing they can talk about. And if you try to take the conversation in a different direction, they will eventually reorient that conversation back to work because that's the only level they know how to interface at. There's a story bouncing around on the internet right now. Wendy, my, my wife Wendy told me about it and I looked it up about a little kid. You've probably heard this story about a little kid who asked his dad how much money he made per hour, right? How, dad, how much do you make per hour? He was really kind of upset that his son was asking the question. I mean, what kind of a question is this for a kid to be asking their parent, you know? And he, he said, well, I don't know why you need to know. But eventually his son pressed enough that he finally said, well, I make $20 an hour if you must know. And his son said, okay, went away for a little while. He came back to dad and said, hey, dad, can I borrow $9? And he's thinking, now I know why he asked me how much I made. Because now he's going to ask me to borrow money. And if I say, no, I'm not going to loan you nine, I'm not going to give you $9, he's going to go, well, why not, Dad? You make $20 an hour. Seems like it's fair enough for you to give me nine. He's really kind of upset. No, I'm not going to loan you the money. Later that night, kid's gone to bed, and dad's sort of calming down, cooling down, thinking, man, maybe I overreacted a little bit. So he goes into his son's bedroom and says, you know what, son, $9 is not, not that huge a thing. I'll, I'll give you the $9. So he handed the $9 to his son, and his son pulled out a few more bills from underneath his pillow, and he thought, good grief. The kid was asking me to borrow money. Turns out he already had money, you know? And the kid puts the, puts the money together and hands it to his dad and says, Dad, now I have $20. Can I get an appointment with you? See, that's what happens. 
We get so wrapped up in achievements because we think that's what the people in our life need us to do. We think the people in our life need Superman. Amnon and Tamar and Absalom did not need Superman. They needed a daddy. And I'm scared to death that we're living in a culture of folks whose parents are trying to be Superman, whose spouses are trying to be Superman, and what they really need is a dad, what they really need is a husband, what they really need is a wife, what they really need is a relationship. Being Superman is about finding a way to do everything, to be everything, but you can't do that. You're gonna have to decide what's most important. You know, Jesus told a story in Luke Chapter 12, verse 16, Jesus was telling his disciples, he said, a rich man had a fertile farm that produced fine crops, and he said to himself, what should I do? I don't have room for all my crops. And then he said, I know, I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones, and then I'll have enough room to store all my wheat and other goods. And I'll sit back and say to myself, which is kind of what happens, when jobs become more important than relationships, eventually you're all you have left to talk to. But, and I'll sit back and say to myself, my friend, you have enough stored away for years to come, now take it easy, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to himself, you fool, you will die this very night. Now check out this next phrase. Then who will get everything you worked for? Yes, a person is a fool to store up earthly wealth, but not have a rich relationship with God. God is saying, even with me, even, even in your relationship with God. And a lot of us need to hear this because a lot of us think God wants us to be some sort of spiritual Superman. And God is saying, look, no, what I want is a relationship with you. I want you to put the relationship First, what is God saying? When, God, when, when Jesus said, then who will all these things be that you work for? God is teaching us something. He's saying, look, the best achievements, the biggest achievements in the world only matter if they're wrapped up in a healthy relationship. They only matter if you have someone to share them with. I brought a verse out here with me. The, the tech team, I didn't give the tech team. Hebrews 12, 2, one of my favorite verses. It says that we're to fix our eyes on Jesus the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For the joy that was set before him. What does that mean? I love this. It means that when Jesus went to the cross, the biggest job anyone has ever done, the biggest achievement, the biggest task that led to the greatest outcome in the history of all mankind. When Jesus looked at the job of going to the cross to pay for our sins, he saw a relationship. And if the real Superman can look at a job like that and see a relationship, then maybe that's what I need to learn to do. I hope this was helpful for you. It's certainly something I'm working on, and I hope you'll bear with us as we take these next weeks as a journey talking about how we can say goodbye to Superman. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the fact that you don't expect us to be superhuman. I want to thank you for the fact that you didn't create us to be superhuman. But you built us to rely on you. You built us to trust you. In the meantime, I pray that you'll help us to have your heart for relationships, that you'll help us to know that our achievements only matter when they're wrapped up in a healthy relationship with others. In this moment, I pray. But if there's anyone who has yet to have a relationship with you, that they would make that decision. Heads are still bowed and eyes are still closed. If you, were, if you would say, you know what, Jonathan, um, I don't have a relationship with God, but you're telling me that that's what's most important to him and 
That's what he wants from me. What would I have to do to have that relationship? Well, here's the deal. Jesus has already done all the hard part. He's died on the cross. He's paid for everything that you've ever done wrong. He's opened the door wide open. Anybody can have a relationship with him. Anybody, anywhere, anytime, no matter what their past, no matter what their history. All he asks for is a yes from you. So I'm going to say the words to a very simple prayer that just reaches out to God and says yes. You can follow along with this silently in your head. You can say this silently to God. Nobody needs to hear it but him. And if you do, it'll be settled once and for all. Ready? Here we go. Dear Jesus, thank you that you love me. Thank you that when you look at me, you don't see a job. I want to have a relationship with you. I know I do wrong things, and I know I can't get to heaven on my own, so I put my faith in you. I ask for your forgiveness, and I ask you to make me God's child. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, everybody look this way just for a second. If you just prayed that prayer, we're so excited for you. We put together a packet of materials we'd like to give you. It has a DVD and a voucher for a Bible in it. We'd just like to get that to you. So you can take that Talk to Us card, check the box that says, I prayed to receive Christ, fill out that information, and take it to guest services, and they'll give that packet to you. Next week, we're going to talk about when we're our own worst enemy. Thanks so much for being here.